It's 2015. Food writer Megan Giller moved from Texas to New York. Her interest in food led her to the world of desserts, and she started to get involved in one particular sweet most of us love to indulge in. Chocolate. When I was a youngster, I just remember Hershey's milk chocolate and thought it was amazing. It wasn't until I was an adult that I found out that, according to some people, it wasn't the real chocolate. I had no clue that there was a whole world of chocolate snobbery. And this is the world Megan found herself in. And there's this real focus on flavor and quality and ethics. It was the craft and artisanal food movement that had started a decade or more before, and it was starting to hit its stride. Handmade, homemade, ethically created and consumed. Farmers markets were all the rage. People wanted to know exactly what was in their food and where it was coming from. It's like they wanted the full story of how every item on their plate got there. And for chocolate, it was no different. It's almost as if people were asking, is my chocolate organic, grass-fed, and free-range? One of those hip artisanal companies was the Mast Brothers, Rick and Michael Mast, two brothers who had started producing chocolate out of their Brooklyn apartment in 2006. Their story? Chocolate bars made from just two ingredients, cocoa beans and sugar, straight from nature, from the bean to the bar. And the brothers? They had that straight-from-nature vibe, too. Matching rust-colored beards. They had the collared shirts buttoned all the way to the top. Hipster style. They were wearing aprons. You know the drill by now. But maybe what distinguished Mash Brothers chocolate the most was their packaging and their pricing. Each bar was hand-wrapped in thick paper that looked like expensive wallpaper with repeating, sleek designs and splashes of color. And for all that, a $10 price tag. $10. Now, listen, folks, you can wrap that bar in a golden ticket from Willy Wonka, and I still ain't paying $10 for it. But we're in hipster Brooklyn. These brothers knew how to attract people, and they did, especially when they opened their factory and flagship shop in the heart of Williamsburg. It was an artisanal hipster oasis. White brick walls and a minimalist decor. Big black boxes dotted the floor where masked bars were displayed in color-coordinated stacks. So they were definitely on Megan's radar. She had heard about them even before she moved. I started paying attention to the Mast Brothers because I had had their chocolate. They seemed very Brooklyn and very hip. I really admired their branding and their marketing, and they kind of seemed like they were on top of the world. These dudes were popular. However... As Megan started to get more involved in the NYC chocolate scene, meeting up with chocolate experts, writers, makers, and shop owners, she noticed something peculiar. They didn't carry mast in their shops, which I always thought was interesting because it was in so many other places and they were the darlings of the food artisanal world. And when I started asking people or if it came up in conversation, they would either kind of just completely hedge and not want to talk about it at all, which of course to me as a journalist was like, oh, there's something there. There were frustrations, gossip, and grumblings that kept coming up in these conversations. And finally, Megan got some of the story. People's chief complaint was they felt that the chocolate was not that good and that it didn't deserve the spotlight that it had. Who knew there was all this drama in the world of chocolate? By 2008, 2009, 
After Mass Brothers have been producing chocolate for a couple years, chocolate tasters, experts, and just your run-of-the-mill chocolate eaters had called attention to some inconsistencies when it came to the product's taste. Sometimes a Mass Bar would be creamy, rich, delicious. Other times, it would just be chalky, almost inedible. No one wanted to talk on the record about it at all. But eventually, people started to share their frustrations. So much so that Megan published an article in 2015 called Chocolate Experts Hate the Mast Brothers, which was mainly about these pesky taste problems. Now, I don't know. In the chocolate world, it could just be some haters who are jealous because their chocolate is getting none of the shine that the Mast Brothers is. But there was something else that hadn't made it into Megan's story that was still on some people's minds. Suspicions that Mass Brothers were selling chocolate that wasn't their own and that wasn't made purely bean to bar, aka saying one thing and doing another. But really, it's bad enough that they were charging $10 for chocolate, but now it could be that it's not even worth $2? This pissed a lot of people off, industry and customers, and it still does. It's kind of crazy how this has gotten turned into itself. Like, even to this day, people will bring up the Mass Brothers to me and say, oh, I hear they were remelting Hershey's and their chocolate should have only cost a dollar or something like that. And I'm like, no, that's so far from what happened. I'm Alzo Slade. And from something else, this is Cheat, a series that asks the question, is it ever okay to break the rules? This week, Unwrapping Hipster Chocolate how one Brooklyn-based craft chocolate company found themselves in the middle of a meltdown. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a story of two brothers, born in a tiny town in Iowa, raised in Iowa City, who moved to New York, the Big Apple, where dreams can become reality. One was a chef, but both brothers were into the artisanal food scene and started to dabble with homemade food experiments in the kitchen. They like making things. They pickled. They brewed their own beer. They baked. I mean, who pickles? It's like these guys were out of a Martha Stewart fairy tale. And then they had the idea, you know what? What about chocolate? And that's when everything changed. But the Mass Brothers wanted to make a specific type of chocolate bar. They wanted to do a bean-to-bar operation. Bean-to-bar chocolate means that people are starting with whole cocoa beans and roasting and grinding and turning it into chocolate from scratch. This is Megan Giller again, author of the book, bean-to-bar chocolate, and founder of Chocolate Noise. According to Megan, bean-to-bar chocolate emerged as part of the farm-to-table movement. And it really started in the late 90s and early 2000s, people thinking like, okay, you really only need cocoa beans and sugar to make chocolate. You just need those two ingredients. Why is there this long list of ingredients on my chocolate bar? Like, let's pare it back to just those two ingredients 
focus on the flavors of those ingredients and sourcing really good versions and paying farmers fairly. And so it kind of grew out of that. The focus was on creating a different type of chocolate where you can really taste the flavors coming from the cocoa bean itself, like single origin bars, which only have two ingredients, cocoa beans and sugar. Whereas a more traditional chocolate would have had four or five ingredients. This is Clay Gordon, an author, chocolate expert, and founder of The Chocolate Life. And those four or five ingredients that you'll find in a chocolate bar at the grocery store tend to be added cocoa, vanilla, and an emulsifier called lecithin, like soy lecithin. And when you're talking about a bean-to-bar operation, these people are serious, and it's a big no-no to include all those extra things. They're all about expressing the individual character of the beans, which is very different from industrial chocolate, which is about making sure that the chocolate doesn't change from month to month, from harvest to harvest, and from year to year. This movement started in the late 90s with John Scharfenberger, who coined the term bean-to-bar. When his company, Scharfenberger Chocolates, was acquired by Hershey's in 2005, people started to see the popularity of an operation like this. So more bean-to-bar companies emerged in the 2000s. Companies like Amano, Askinosi, Taza, Patrick, Rogue, those are kind of the core people who started out, and they were the only ones in the country for a while. Even though a lot of these companies were paving the way in craft chocolate production, most of them weren't really on the map for the average chocolate consumer. And then came the Mass Brothers. I seem to remember in early photographs that there was models of sailing ships. And, you know, they put on their white chef coats and they showed their tattoos and they had these long red beards. And, you know, they just seemed sort of emblematic of the sort of hipster food movement in Brooklyn. There's something about these dudes that just makes people frustrated. And I kind of get it. I mean, at the time, they were really working their image as Williamsburg hipsters, wearing the tweed vests and making chocolate cold brew. I don't even know what that means. But they were also making that image part of their product story. They were trying to sell their chocolate, but also sell people on them as authentic chocolate makers, which would make their chocolate different and special. I mean, they told Vanity Fair in a 2015 profile that they were the poster boys for hipster to gourmet chocolate. If we think about the number one thing about that food movement that emerged, it was about authenticity, right? So we want to be authentic. We want to tell good stories. We want to be open about what we're doing. And man, you know, when it came to being the poster children, for for want of a better term, of authenticity, these guys nailed it. I mean, they were they were brilliant at it. To some extent, the Mass Brothers understood that selling the product also meant selling themselves. You can see it in their early interviews. It's all in the way they talk about their work, like the way Rick Mass described making chocolate as something that, quote, stimulated his intellect as well as his taste buds. Mmm, is that deep or... I don't know. He also added... It was this very complex, multifaceted experience with a story and a process that I was connected to. Listen, I respect the hustle to sell, but that's all just a little silly to me, to be honest. But this process that they were talking about, well, they were trying to communicate to the consumer that by purchasing their chocolate, you became part of that process too. And people ate it up. 
pun intended. People were buying this chocolate. The Williamsburg factory shop became a tourist destination, and the company was securing some big-name partnerships with restaurants, specialty stores, clothing brands, and magazines. Somehow, Mast had taken the bougie culture of luxurious chocolate, sprinkled some hipster marketing dust on it, and got the industry's attention. I think Mast was really influential in the, the craft chocolate world across the board. Their great marketing pushed all of the craft chocolate makers to want to do better. I mean, if you looked at the labels and the packaging of other brands at that point, they were like very amateur compared to Mast. So I think they really inspired a lot of people. And the company started to expand. By 2015, they had opened stores in London and Los Angeles. They were about to lease a massive space in the Brooklyn Navy Yard. And sure, there were critics here and there, but no one could deny that their operation was booming. But all that attention had its consequences, too. And some of that came from how the Mass Brothers framed themselves. They claimed they were the first people to be making chocolate this way, bean to bar from scratch, and that they had kind of invented this process and how they were doing it. The Mass Brothers leaned hard into the narrative that they were the first to bring back the old school way of making chocolate, revisiting the traditional methods of the trade, even when it came to transporting the beans. Like in 2011, they chartered a 70-foot sailboat to pick up 20 metric tons of cocoa beans from the Dominican Republic. Now, I'll be honest, I don't know how cocoa beans are normally transported, but these dudes had burlap sacks, which definitely fit the profile of their narrative. The last time a schooner had imported commercial goods to an NYC port was 1939. So, yeah, they were making a show of their all-natural approach. And look, the Mass Brothers aren't the only folks who go over the top with their marketing efforts. Anybody trying to sell something is going to say their product is the best. We got to expect that. But there was something to their hubris that went a little too far, especially for the folks who felt like mass chocolate wasn't even that good. It was other people in the industry who would say this. They just didn't think it deserved the spotlight and they would rather see other people who were doing better work, who were really struggling. They wanted to see those people highlighted. The spotlight on mass got more intense. See, the Mass Brothers prided themselves on their work process and the holistic element of their bean-to-bar products. And by doing that, they were helping raise awareness in general about the craft chocolate movement. But it turns out, bar purity would be the exact thing that people started to question them about. This is where the controversy arose. Because there was the chocolate that they actually manufactured from cocoa beans that they brought into the facility and then roasted and then refined and then put into bars. Okay, so are you saying that there was another kind of chocolate? And then the allegations are that there was other chocolate that they sold that they were remelting. Wait, what? These dudes were making their own chocolate but also selling somebody else's chocolate as theirs? <laughs> nah, Say it ain't so. I mean, this went against their whole story. Bean to bar, remember? Produced by them in their Williamsburg factory. It just didn't make sense. And that is the Achilles heel, for want of a better term, of the Mass Brothers. People just didn't like Mass Brothers chocolate. They bought into the Mass Brothers brand identity. 
And when that brand became challenged, they were challenged. And that's why the reaction was as severe as it was. More after the break. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared in Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. I think that people, like the general public, really started caring once there was a story in courts and then the Slate story, and then everyone started picking it up. It spiraled into a whole thing. Everybody was talking about mass chocolate, and as the story grew, the details of what actually had happened got fuzzier and fuzzier. People were making all sorts of allegations, and one of them was that the Mass Brothers did not make their chocolate at the beginning, but there were so many allegations flying around and no one could prove anything. Until the end of 2015, when those allegations were publicly aired in an investigative four-part piece by a Dallas-based food writer, and it openly addressed the primary allegation. Were the Mash Brothers buying high-end chocolate, melting it down, and selling it as their own until 2009? The blog had evidence to suggest it was true. And then, boom the story exploded. Publications that previously fawned over the brothers and their rise were now part of the coverage condemning them. One of the things that came to light was an inconsistency with labeling. Mass chocolate bars were largely distinguished by the lack of information on the wrapper. It seemed like an aesthetic choice. It looked sleek and smooth. But photos of bars produced prior to 2009 revealed that there had been more than just two ingredients in the mix. Some labels had cocoa butter and soy lecithin. Remember, those are the no-nos. Plus, they were the very same ingredients the brothers had snubbed previously. Like just earlier that year, in February of 2015, Rick had said, large-scale manufacturers have to add emulsifiers, etc. to make their processes work. We don't need to. Our process is simple and pure. Having soy lecithin and vanilla and cocoa butter in it, those were indications to experts that they weren't making the chocolate themselves because it was not the style of bean de bar at that time. It was not that there's anything wrong with those things. It's that they were indications that, okay, this chocolate is coming from somewhere else than the Mass Brothers kitchen. To be clear, it's actually pretty normal in the chocolate world to melt down chocolate and use it in other products. But... This wasn't really the story Mast had been telling. And as the coverage grew, the company saw their sales drop. Folks took to the internet to air their anger or their amusement at the situation. A bunch of people who were paying $10 for what they believed to be an ethically produced craft bar of chocolate from some hipsters might be eating Hershey's? 
Mm, some folks say it would serve them right. But those who were angry were the ones who had bought the chocolate and the story. And these folks, well, they felt betrayed. People thought that Mass Brothers were making one thing and it was so remarkable the way they'd made it. And then it turned out, well, maybe it wasn't that thing. And I think it really harnessed a lot of maybe unspoken feelings about hipsters, which to me was terrifying to watch this thing take on a life of its own. Michael and, and Rick were being criticized for having beards. I mean, even in my story, I make fun of their beards, but I wouldn't say that makes them not good at what they do or fakes or anything like that. It got pretty personal real fast. At one point, the brothers were receiving threats to their physical safety. Can you imagine this fight? I'm going to whoop your ass because I paid $10 for this chocolate bar. I'd say you might need to get your ass whooped for paying $10 for a chocolate bar in the first place. But I digress. Clearly, this story had tapped into some deeply rooted frustrations with the craft food movement in general. Because... Yeah, it's good to know where your food is made and how it's made, but that transparency has traditionally come at a high price, literally. A lot of artisanal food companies were, I think, being questioned about whether or not they really were doing what they said they were doing. It just harnessed a specific moment of maybe people being angry, too, about the price of some of these foods and how much they really are. So here, Rick and Michael Mast are getting roasted by the chocolate industry. And you're probably wondering, well, what was their reaction? At first, they didn't react at all. They thought the controversy would just blow over. And when it didn't, they vehemently denied the allegations. They continued to state that their operation had been and always would be being to bar. I think part of the outrage and part of the reason they really saw so much backlash is that they weren't very forthcoming when this whole scandal hit. They didn't react for a while, and then they denied everything and kind of poo-pooed it. And I think that made people even angrier. And if they just come out and responded <laughs> at the beginning, I think that people would have been a lot less excited about it. But it was like, oh, no, they're denying any claims. And then it just kept escalating and escalating. Until a couple weeks later, in a 2015 New York Times interview, when Rick Mast confirmed that the brothers did use industrial chocolate in their early products, something also known as couverture. And you see, this is another reminder of just how niche this story is. What the hell is couverture? Couverture is essentially chocolate with added cocoa butter. Okay, some facts. About 50% of a cocoa bean is fat. That natural fat is cocoa butter. It's part of what gives chocolate this like really, you know, melty, delicious feel when you put it in your mouth. So a lot of chocolatiers will add extra cocoa butter to chocolate for the flavor and because it makes the chocolate easier to mold. And that's couverture. It's actually a pretty normal component of most chocolate production, especially for chocolatiers. And you can make your own couverture or you can buy it from other companies. It's not necessarily good thing or bad thing. Maybe in the beginning of the bean-to-bar world, people had ideas that you shouldn't add cocoa butter to chocolate, but I don't think most people believe that anymore. At the time, though, maybe because people didn't really understand what couverture was, it seemed like a confirmation that the Mass Brothers had cheated people. It didn't help either that somewhere in the speculation and outrage, people started to say that Mast had been buying and remelting Hershey's chocolate to sell, which wasn't true. In fact, 
even though the brothers never confirmed it, most reports had it that Mast had purchased and possibly used Valrona, a very fancy high-end French chocolate company that makes its own couverture. The thing that's tricky about it to me is that there are a lot of companies that melt down chocolate, form their own bars, put sea salt or whatever on it, and then sell it as their own thing. If you asked them, they would say, oh, I use Valrona or I use Calibo or I use Felchlin or whatever. Which, let's be clear, is not what the brothers were saying. So maybe that's the difference. Although I have definitely seen in a lot of places now a bar that will say bean to bar, and then you realize, oh, well, it was made bean to bar by someone, but not by (laughs) the company that's selling it. The problem was that the Mass Brothers had given no indication anywhere on their labels or in interviews that they were using couverture in their bars, whether it was couverture they were making or buying. But if it's an industry standard, is that something they need to tell old customers? This is all speculation, but I'm just imagining a brand new company going to the farmer's market at their booth. Is the average customer going to care that some is made with Valrona and some is made from scratch in their kitchen? I don't know. We reached out to a former MAST employee who confirmed that at his time working for the company, 2014 to 2016, all of the products were made bean to bar. No sneaky business. Which would make sense because it was 2009 when people started to notice a real change in MAST bars. I think it's clear that at the height of their company, when all these allegations came out, they were making their own chocolate. I would not necessarily say it's an intentional scam or cheat or anything like that. I feel like it was something that wasn't quite on the up and up, but then got blown into way bigger proportions than I ever could have imagined. Listen, in some ways, I get it. I mean, you think you're paying $10, prudent or not prudent, for this handmade chocolate with the pretty wrapping and the great story about two brothers doing this together in their apartment. And now, it might not be that at all. So people just wanted to know, what the hell am I actually paying for? More on that after the break. In the end, Mass Brothers had to make some pretty big changes. They ended up moving their operation out of Williamsburg to upstate New York. It had a huge impact on their bottom line. And, you know, even if you look at the branding now, it's Mast Market, not Mast Brothers. They shut down a number of their operations, changed locations, and changed their name. I think a lot of people in the chocolate world, in the artisanal food world, kind of see it as a warning (laughs) and are terrified that something like that might happen to them over something that they did or didn't know was a big deal when they did it. And people wouldn't let the story go. It lingered for a while in the public consciousness. Every time you said what you did or, like, mentioned anything about chocolate, it became a conversation about the Mass Brothers. I think the price tag is still a, a sticking point. I don't know if people necessarily think they're being cheated out of anything, but um, I know that's still a sticking point for a lot of people. Yeah, that price tag? These bars started out at $7, which is already pretty damn high, and bumped up to $10. In some ways, it felt kind of ridiculous to pay that amount for a bar of chocolate, especially if you're not getting what you were promised. But most chocolate experts are grateful because this got the conversation going about chocolate pricing and the chocolate production process. 
Most people don't think about the cocoa supply chain when they think about chocolate. I think the joke that I've heard a long time is like, where do we think chocolate comes from? The bag of chocolate. Mmm, yeah. So let's talk about it, hmm? The supply chain. Honestly, the people who really got cheated here and have been cheated the whole time are the cocoa farmers, who are primarily in Central and South America, Western Africa, and the Philippines. And they have a high level of expertise in this line of work, but are pretty vulnerable to exploitation. The cocoa supply chain is based on colonization, and it's based before that on slavery. It goes back hundreds of years, and people in the global north have been exploiting people in the global south for, you know, hundreds of years, and also all the resources in those areas. So, I mean, there are people across the world doing really hard work and have a lot of expertise who are being paid just a pittance and living in poverty so that we can eat $1 or $2 chocolate bars. People will pay a lot of money for a bottle of wine, mainly for the integrity of the product, which includes the process. Same goes for coffee and cheese. So why wouldn't we have the same attitude towards chocolate? There really hasn't been as much emphasis on what happens at the farm level for cocoa and for other things too. And it is so important and vital to to recognize not just how much work it is, but how much expertise that goes back generations and generations too. It's pretty clear the old way of doing things in the chocolate world needs to change. That being said, paying $10 for a Mast bar is probably not going to solve the problem. But companies like Mast are actually trying to work directly and fairly with cocoa farmers and collectives. Although somehow in all of the Mast pointing fingers, this larger point gets lost. It's like, okay, there was this controversy, but the bigger issue about these really serious ethical issues, like it does seem like the Mass Brothers have been on the up and up as opposed to all these other chocolate companies whose products we buy, they're not on the up and up and that's not even really discussed. But in all their efforts to be ethical and to be transparent with the consumer, the Mass Brothers had sorely miscalculated how fragile their brand really was in the customer's eyes. And maybe that's because the success of Mass Brothers Chocolate really rested, first and foremost, on a story. There's such a strong call for authenticity. And then, you know, having any deviation from that story really is seen as messing up. There's many reasons why they didn't want to, like, respond (laughs) to all these allegations. But I'm sure that's one of them, that they had their story and being the first and making bean to bar chocolate was a very important part of that. And yet, most people remember the Mass Brothers as a fraud. Most chocolate experts don't agree with that. And for the most part, the majority of allegations leveled at the company still haven't been confirmed. But with the rebranded mass market returning to New York City, the story is bound to come up again. Like in a podcast. But I'm sure the details will be rehashed over and over and people will say something about mass selling Hershey's, even though they didn't. But really, this is just a story about the power of a story. Because if you sell people on a specific narrative, anything that seems like a change to it feels like betrayal, whether any real cheating happened or not. At that point, it's in the hands of the consumer. Because it's the consumer who, when buying a product with a backstory that's special and different, they're buying into the authenticity of the narrative, the idea, the image, the identity. And when that carefully crafted image is punctured, well, yeah, people might feel cheated. 
Hey, folks, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Cheat wherever you get it. And please do leave a rating and a review if you like what we're doing. It helps other people discover the show. And of course, we want more listeners. Also, if you want to listen to the show without the ads, you can subscribe to Cheat Plus. It's like Cheat, but better. It's just $2.99 a month, or if you're in the UK, £2.49. And you get all of this without having to listen to those annoying commercials. Just go to Apple Podcasts and hit subscribe instead of follow. You can try it for free now. Next week on Cheat. It is still a massive source of sadness and frustration and, frankly, guilt for me that this whistleblower suffered in the way that they did and that in the end, you know, nobody nobody suffered more, I would argue, than the whistleblower in this case. That's not the way the system should work. Cheat is written and presented by me, Alzo Slade. This episode was produced by Julia Doyle. The executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs and Tom Koenig. The series editor is Tom Fuller. The original idea for this show was developed by Tom Fuller. Engineering, sound design, and scoring by Martin Peralta at Output Media. Our design and visual team is Emma Lansdowne and Sarah De La Rue. Our production coordinators are Jennifer Mystery and Iker Egbatola. <laughs>